Well, this is certainly a unique experience for me as well as for you in that I'm not used to speaking on a Wednesday service. And I'm going to fill you in on just a little secret. I'm just a wee bit nervous <laughs> about the whole thing, okay? Because I don't exactly know what your expectations are for this service. But let me say right off the bat that I am not a preacher. I am a teacher of the word. And my method might be a little different than what you're used to because I'm far more accustomed to teaching and talking to a small group than I am for a larger group, although I have done larger groups. But so I'm going to ask you tonight if you would just extend me just a little bit of grace um, and allow me, I hope, to be able to stir, up, stir your minds up by way of remembrance to some of the truths of God's Word. And I really am excited and privileged, feel privileged to be allowed to do this. But before we begin, would you join me in a word of prayer? Because I need it. Okay. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege we have of opening your word tonight. And Lord, you know the message that I feel that has been on my heart that you have given to me. And I ask tonight that you would just help each one of us to breathe out all the anxieties of the day, to listen intently to what your spirit might say to each one of us. Hide me, Father, behind the cross. Clothe me with your spirit and speak through me the words that would be encouragement to the ones that are here, those that need to hear it. For I ask these things in the precious and mighty name of Jesus. Amen. All right, the title I've chosen for this message is The Story of Two Lions. And uh, I know that's a bit unusual of a title for a message. And I know that animals... Lions in particular, um, you don't hear much about in sermons, but they are mentioned in Scripture. And if I were to ask you tonight to tell me a story about lions in Scripture, I'm sure probably 99% of you would say, oh, Daniel and the lion's den, that's one. Yes, everybody who's ever been to Sunday school or to junior church or read the word at all knows the story of Daniel and the lion's den and how that he refused to listen to the king's edict, and he went ahead and prayed, regardless of the fact that it was against the law, and was thrown into a den of hungry lions. But God closed the mouth of those lions. That's an exciting story. But that's not the story I have for you tonight. That's not what I'm talking about. And I'm not going to talk to you about Samson either, and how Samson was able, in the word, it says that he ripped a lion apart with his bare hands. And we're not going to talk about David, the shepherd boy who killed a lion with a slingshot when the lions attacked their, his sheep. But I do want to talk to you about two other lions, and I'm sure you can figure out which ones they are, lions and scriptures. Lions, these two lions are quite the opposite of one another, and yet they have quite a lot to do with us. Now, I don't know how much you know about lions, but I do doubt that anyone wants one as a family pet because lions aren't soft, cuddly, gentle, purring kitty cats. They just aren't. They are wild and dangerous animals. They're fierce, and they're feared by both men and animals. And there's a reason why they're called king of the beast and sometimes king of the jungle, because they're known for their hunting and their killing ability. Now, I know that Hollywood is popular. At, he, they like to do things with songs and with movies. And way back, I'm going way back to when I was a teenager, back in 1961, 
there was a, a group known as the Tokens that wrote a song that was called The Lion Sleeps Tonight. And for those of you that, that know my husband, if you've been around him very much, you know that he likes to sing songs and he often makes up lyrics to songs that, you know, that don't go with, with the song at all. But he does that. So he was doing that around the house only this particular time he was singing the correct lyrics of The Lion Sleeps Tonight and he would sing it around the house. Well, when my youngest daughter managed to go to the theater and she saw The Lion King for the first time, she came back and she was incredulous. She said, Dad, how did they get your song? She thought he had written the song instead. Uh, so, but he, needless to say, um, the lions don't sleep. <laughs> At least not the two lions that we're going to talk about tonight. But there is a movie from Hollywood that some of you may have seen. It was written back, or done back in the 90s, and I believe Michael Douglas might have been the star of it. It was called The Ghost and the Darkness, and it's a true story. It took place in, in the 1896, the year 1896, and it was on the border of Kenya and Uganda in Africa. And the story tells a story of a, the movie tells a story of a British Army engineer who was sent to build a railroad there, and how two lions terrorized his work by sneaking into the camp in the dead of night and over a period of nine months managed to drag 135 men out of their beds during the night, killing them and devouring many of them. Unbelievable, kind of scary stuff. So if you ever get a hold of that on Netflix or as a DVD to watch it, I don't advise you to watch it just before going to bed. I think that would be kind of scary. But tonight I want us to look at two lions that are mentioned in Scripture and spend some time learning the characteristics of each one, how each lion differs and how they affect our lives. What lions am I talking about? Well, obviously the first one is the prowling, roaring lion of 1 Peter 5.8. And obviously, Peter is referring to Satan, and he's using him using the uh, analogy of a lion. And the second lion we want to talk about is the protecting, conquering lion of Revelations 5.5. He's called the Lion of the Tribe of Judah. And obviously, the Lion of the Tribe of Judah is Jesus. It's another name for him. Now, both of these lions are fierce in their own right, and they're to be feared, though for different reasons and by different groups of people. Many of us understand the analogy and the warning Peter's using of roaring and prowling lion to be a picture of Satan, but how many of us really understand the analogy and the characteristics of the lion of the tribe of Judah? It's only mentioned one time in Scripture, and that's in the book of Revelations. We're more familiar with Jesus being depicted as the Lamb of God. We hear that throughout the whole New Testament, Old Testament, the Lamb of God. But in Revelations, he is now called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And that's an entirely different presentation of him than we're used to. But before we look at the Lion of Judah, I want us to look at the Lion of 1 Peter 5, 8. And I'm reading to you tonight from the scripture from the Phillips translation. He says, be self-controlled and vigilant always, for your enemy the devil is always about, prowling like a roaring lion for its prey. Resist him, 
standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Now, King James puts the words this way. He says that we are to be sober and alert. So we have be self-controlled and vigilant or be sober and alert. In other words, Peter is telling us to be on your guard. Why? Sometimes? No. He says, be vigilant always. How often is always? Well, always is always. That means there's no time that you can slack off. And why? Because, he says, we have an enemy, and that enemy is sneaky, and he doesn't announce himself, and he doesn't announce his intentions. But he's walking around roaring, always roaring, and King James Version says he's looking for someone to devour. Now, I don't know about you, but being devoured by a lion is not a very pleasant prospect for me to think about. So what he's telling us here, Peter is saying, using such strong imagery to impress on us the danger and the nature of our enemy. We don't dare snooze. We can't. He compares Satan to a lion. And do you know that a lion will watch the herd of its intended prey from a distance for a while? And then he gauges where the weak ones are or the stragglers and plans his move carefully, waiting for just the right time to pounce. And then the lion, when he does begin his chase of the prey, manages to maneuver himself so that he isolates the prey from the rest of the herd. Now, Peter's drawing an analogy between a roaring lion and our enemy, Satan. So let me tell you, the most dangerous thing that you can do is to stay away from church, from small group meetings, from meeting with Christians, from praying together, because you've got other things that seem more important to do. That's very dangerous. When you do that, you know what you're doing? You're making yourself a prey for the lion. You understand what Peter is saying here in this verse? He's saying that your enemy, Satan, is watching you as well. Watching you. I don't like that thought, but that's what Peter's saying. He said he's walking around always seeking someone that he can devour. He's watching your habits. He's watching where you show signs of weakness what things you treasure the most, what you tend to fear. And he comes by stealth, and he sneaks in unannounced. So we need to be on our guard, because he will roar. Have you ever heard a lion roar? When my kids were little, we went to the Toledo Zoo, and I remember that day very well. We were standing looking at the monkeys and laughing at their antics, and all of a sudden the lion behind us let out a roar. And let me tell you, it was absolutely deafening, and it seemed to reverberate even into my chest. And I swear, even to this day, I think the ground shook with that roar. It was very frightening. The lion's roar can strike fear into your heart if you're not on guard. And the roar can freeze you in fear. And when we're frozen in fear, what happens? We stop moving. We stop resisting. We do nothing, which is deadly. Now, Jesus talked about Satan, too, and he called him a thief. And he said that the, Satan, that the thief comes only to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And when I read that, I thought, you know, that sounds like devouring to me. 
He's going to kill, and he's going to steal, and he's going to destroy. I'm going to be devoured. That's his aim. So what does he want to kill? What does he want to devour in your life? Have you thought about it? What is it? Well, number one, he wants to devour your faith. And how does he do that? Well, the first thing he does is he creates doubt. He'll pose questions to you that you can't answer. He plants the thought there in your mind. Or he'll use someone else to plant the thought in your mind. Is God really there? Is he listening? Well, why is this happening to me then? Then he'll magnify fear. Remember, he's been watching you. He knows what things you tend to be afraid of. And he will magnify that fear to you. He'll present, if you ever noticed it, he'll present the very worst case scenario to you. And we live in these what ifs. What if this happens? Oh, what if that's going to happen? What if? Do you know that fear is all based on a lie? It's based on imagination. And just like when I was a young girl and babysitting and sitting in the dark in this home with a light on in the living room and the rest of the house is dark, and you know how a house will settle and it creaks and it groans? And I could hear these creaks and groans and I swore that there was somebody in the house with me. What was happening was my fear, the imagination of my heart. Satan was playing upon my mind. He will play those things and do tricks like that on your mind. But it's all based on a lie. He, well, doubt is based on a lie as well. He plants just a suggestion. God doesn't really love you. If God really loved you, you wouldn't be going through this. And can I tell you that sometimes the enemy's roar comes more like a whisper to our heart, but yet it roars in our mind. It's a whisper. All right, secondly, he wants to, first, number one, he wants to steal your faith. And secondly, he wants to steal your joy. Because once he's placed a doubt in your mind, then he uses circumstances to unsettle you. Oh, he'll whisper those suggestions to you. He creates anxiety in your heart. And his next aim is he will use discouragement. He can tell you nothing's going to change. Look how long you've been praying about this. Look how many people have prayed for you and it hasn't changed. God doesn't care. Discouragement. Have you ever tried to be joyful when you're discouraged? Doesn't work very well. <laughs> then he'll use distraction and hindrance. There's a track I read one time. It was called The Tyranny of the Urgent. And it, the, the whole gist of it was the tyranny of the urgent, the things that are right there, right now, in your face, crowds out the important. That happens to us. He gets us busy. He'll throw all kinds of hindrances and interruptions into our life. Anything he can do to get us dwelling on the problem, he will get us to do anything and everything to keep our mind off of spiritual things. It's a distraction he will use. And he, the third thing he use, likes to use is deception. He just outright lies to us. And he gets us to believe lies about God and about ourselves and about others. And the reason he does all those things is number three, because he wants to destroy your life or devour you. And how does he do that? Well, he does it with lies. The first thing he does is he comes to you with temptation. 
temptation. His aim is to get you to give in to sin so that he can ruin your relationship of communion with Christ. And he gets you to ruin your testimony, ruin relationships with one another. And then you know what he'll do? He comes back around and he twists it around and like a kicker, he'll heap condemnation on you. What kind of a person are you that you'd fall for that? Why would you commit that kind of a sin? You're a terrible person. It's one of his things that he does to destroy you. The second thing he does in trying to destroy your life is he will overwhelm you with trials, with sickness, with financial problems, with strife at home, with accusations from other people, with stress, anything he can use. And most of those things, I'm telling you, will come because we live in a fallen world. There's a joke I heard years and years ago that Satan was seen sitting on, the, uh, sitting on the curb, crying his eyes out one day, and his head demon came along and said, Master, why are you crying? And the joke says that Satan looked up to him and said, well, because all these Christians keep blaming me for things I haven't had a chance to do. Sometimes we want to lay the blame where it doesn't belong. Yes, it's ultimately it was Satan because sin entered the world. We live in a fallen world. So things like sickness, debilitating diseases, um, financial problems, strife, all of those things, it's because we live in a fallen world, we suffer them as well as people in the world suffer them. We're all the same. And he does all of those things because he attempts to cause you to despair and walk away from your relationship with God. Despair is, in the dictionary, despair is called, uh, is defined as a sense of utter hopelessness. A sense of utter hopelessness. He's very good at trying to put that on you, attempting to give you that. And then you know what he does? He turns it around and he'll blame it on God. He says, look at how God is treating you. Ah. He's a despicable character, as well as being the lion. So he attempts, and sadly, you know, Peter is warning us, if it were not possible for these things to happen to us, it wouldn't be in the word of God as a warning. I tell you that we need to take God's word seriously, take his warning seriously. Peter's using strong language. Pay attention to it. So what do we do in the face of his roaring, in the face of his attacks? Well, 1 Peter 5, 9 tells us, he says, resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of problems, same kind of suffering. When I resist something, what am I doing? <laughs> I'm saying no. No. Don't buy into the lies. Resist it. Resist him. You know, if you came up and you grabbed hold of my arm unexpectedly and tried to pull me away, what would your natural reaction be? <laughs> no. Not doing that to me. We're supposed to resist the, resist the devil and stand firm in the faith. Now, Satan wants you to believe that you're the only one going through this kind of temptation, this kind of problem, this kind of trial. And yet Scripture tells us that, the, that believers throughout the whole world are going through the same kind of sufferings. What you're going through is not unique. Others have gone through it. They have. 
and some of them have either allowed themselves to be devoured and walked away from their relationship, or they've been made stronger and continue to move forward with God. So many times when the lion roars, instead of resisting him, we freeze, or we try to just ignore him, which doesn't work. But James 4, 7 tells us that we are to submit to God and then resist the devil, and he will flee from us. Now, that word flee is a very interesting word because it has the connotation of not just a casual turning and walking away, but literally running as fast as he can run. That's what I want to see with the enemy when he comes around in my life. Resist him, and that's all we have to do. It says if you resist him, he will flee. He doesn't, he comes in by stealth, tries to be unnoticed so that you don't know what's happening. And as soon as you recognize him, and say, no, in the name of Jesus, he runs. Because he's really, he's really, though he's a fierce lion, he's a chicken as well. <laughs> he doesn't like to deal with it. So why don't we resist? Why is it that sometimes the enemy comes and we don't, we don't well, sometimes it's because we haven't re recognized that he sneaked in. Sometimes it's because our faith is too weak. So let me ask you this. What makes us weak in faith? Uh, I forget, I'm not in a small group, and you're not going to answer me, are you? <laughs> what makes us weak in faith? Number one is the lack of knowledge of the Word of God. Please, please, please listen to me. If you don't hear anything else and don't take anything else home with you tonight, if you're not feeding on God's Word, if you're neglecting your time with alone with God, then let me tell you, you will never have the strength to effectively resist the devil. You can't let this sit on the coffee table and never open it and expect that your life is going to be good. Satan will, he's around, and he's roaring, and he will take advantage of it. You have got to spend time. If you've been in my Bible studies, you know I ride that as a hobby horse. If I, could, if I could somehow open your brain and open your heart and pour it into you, I would. You've got to spend the time in God's Word feeding yourself so that you will have the strength to go on and resist the enemy. You know, Ephesians 6, 16 and 17, 16 to 18 says, in addition to all this, and he's Paul talking, and he's talking about the armor of God that he's just said we were to put on. He said, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith from which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. All right, the first thing you need to do if you're going to resist the enemy is make sure you're really a believer. And make sure that the helmet of salvation is securely on your head. In other words, you know what you know what you know. First John tells us we can know that we have eternal life. You need to settle that. Make sure you know that you have eternal life. That's the first part of your armor that you've got to have on. And then he says, take up the shield of faith. All right, so maybe I'm weak in faith. How do I strengthen my shield? Well, again... Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You can't get away with it. You have to have the word of God. Then you go with the sword of the spirit. 
You resist with the sword, which is the word of God. You need to use the word. In other words, you need to get to know it so that you can quote it to the devil. When Jesus was in the, the wilderness and was being tempted by Satan, what did he do? He didn't argue with him. He said, it is written. It is written. If you don't know the word of God, you're not going to be able to say, it is written. You need to be able to learn it enough so that you can and find those scriptures that will bolster you and exactly what you are being faced with so that you can overcome it. Let me give you an example. Perhaps you're being tempted to sin. You know, sometimes, well, maybe it's pornography. And that's a problem nowadays for both men and women. Or maybe it's uh, an illicit, something that's wrong. You know it's wrong, and you're being tempted by it, and you don't know how to get. And you say, I can't break with this. It's too hard. Uh-uh. Let me tell you what. The sword of the Spirit is like a two-edged sword. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and 20 is a scripture you need to memorize and you learn how to use it. You apply it to yourself. So when the enemy comes in and says, you know, nobody's going to know. You can just, just this one time. Nobody will know. Just this one time. And then you can stop. No. You look the, him in the eye and you say, I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. I am not my own. I am bought with a price. Therefore, I will glorify God in my body and in my spirit. And what's, he's going to run. He's not going to stick around when you use the word of God like that. You've got to get a handle on the word of God and use it. And then the last thing is the, another way that we uh, resist the devil is with prayer. You call on the Lord. And it's especially effective if you're praying in the spirit, you're praying in tongues. Paul tells us that when we pray in tongues, we edify or we build ourselves up. It strengthens you. If you need to be built up, use your prayer language. Now, if you haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit, that's not an excuse not to pray, because let me tell you something. Prayer in general is powerful. Prayer is, all prayer is powerful. In fact, I think it was the man who started um, the Salvation Army, William Booth, I guess his name was. I think he's the one who said that Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint on their knees. You know, I have that written in the flyleaf of my Bible. You need to write it. <laughs> Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint on their knees. Why? Because we are calling upon the name of the Lord. It's powerful. Call on the Lord. Now that brings me to our second lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah. That's another name, obviously, of Jesus, and he has many names given to us in Scripture. The first lion was the prowling, roaring lion. Our second lion is the protecting, conquering lion. He's the lion of Judah. He's the true king, not of the jungle, but of all creation. And he's king of kings, the conqueror. The book of Revelation is really the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is what he's talking about. And the word that the term, the Lion of Judah, stands for the fact that he is a triumphant king and comforter, con conqueror, I'm sorry, and he's a fierce one at that, a triumphant king and a conqueror, but he's not fierce towards us. He's fierce towards his enemies. You know, when I was on vacation just a couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege to again 
sit down with my grandsons, and I watched The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from the Chronicles of Narnia. I love that movie. It's written for children, and yet I don't think children really grasp all of the symbolism that's in it. It's good for you as adults to sit and watch it, too. And how I thrilled, again, reading that, listening to that movie and watching it with them. Because in the movie, the movie is about Aslan, the lion, who, of course, is representative of Jesus. Aslan in the lion, and the little girl, Susan, is talking to the beaver. And the beaver has just told her that Aslan, the lion, is coming. And Susan, very concerned, looks at him and said, Lion? Is he safe? And the beaver says, safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. We don't have to fear the Lion of Judah. He's on our side. He's on our side. He is the conqueror, he is the deliverer, and he is the all-powerful one. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. When we call... In prayer on the Lord, we have all the power of the Lion of Judah behind us. Everything he represents, we can have that power behind us. Now, let me read you Revelations 5, 5, and I'm reading from the New International. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. Notice, that is past tense. He has already triumphed. Are you weeping over all that the enemy is capable of doing? You're weeping over his attack against you? Stop weeping. Don't weep. The Lion of Judah has triumphed. Game over. Satan is fighting a losing battle. He just doesn't know it. My brother shares a story from our childhood. Now, I was, a, I was the oldest child and the only girl with five brothers, so they were younger than me. And I don't recall this. I recall hearing about it, but I don't recall seeing it. So he, he told us the story. But he said someone had given my dad some live chickens, and they wanted to, to slaughter them and have them for our dinner for that night. So he took the older boys outside in the yard, and he began to tie up the, the chickens' feet, and he hung them on the clothesline, and he was going to kill them. But for whatever reason, he suddenly took one of the chickens down, and he said to the boys, watch this. And with one quick slice, he sliced the head off of that chicken, and the chicken's head fell to their feet, and then he threw the body of the chicken down on the ground. And that head, my brother said, the head sat there going, beep, beep, beep. <laughs> it was still beeping. But the body of the chicken was flapping its wings and running in circles around that entire yard, the whole time spurting blood out the neck where there was no head anymore. And so they start to scream, and they said, Daddy, it's not dead, it's not dead, kill it, Daddy, kill it. And my dad wisely said, oh, he's dead. He just doesn't know it yet. That's a beautiful picture of Satan, of what has happened to him. He's dead. He just doesn't know it yet. We aren't fighting to win the victory. We're fighting from the place of victory. The war's been won, and all we are to do is simply enforce the victory that's already been won. The enemy's plan of attack is to get you to move away from the stance of victory, to give in, do nothing, and let him overpower you. 
When we give in to fear, to doubt, and discouragement, can I tell you that you've moved away from your stance of victory? Jesus has already won that victory. We are simply to stand in it. That's why, when, that's why Peter said in, in uh, verse 8, just be steadfast in faith. In other words, plant your feet and refuse to move, no matter what's going on around you. You need to come to the place, the same place that, that Job, you remember everything that Job went to? I come back to that all the time, where Job said to his accusers, he said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. That's faith. That is a steadfast faith. It says, though he slay me, that's how much trust he had in his God, that God loved him. So let me tell you, when we read in Ephesians 6, 12, that we are wrestling against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness and spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms, it's pretty ominous. It sounds scary. I certainly don't have power over them all. You know, it's, if I think about myself having to do battle with this, it's, you know what, you kind of shrink away. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. But then one day I read Colossians 2.15. Colossians 2.15 is speaking of Jesus, and listen to what it says. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Can I read that to you again? It's speaking of Jesus. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Satan has been disarmed. All he has in his arsenal now are lies and deception, which are his primary weapon against us. And then he will use his cohorts in the world, those who are still bound in darkness, who have not been born again. They're still in his kingdom. He will still use those to do his bidding. That's where the persecution and false accusations come from because they're listening to their father, the devil. And he will use circumstances that come that are common to man and come to us because of this fallen world. He will use them trying to break us down. But Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's where we stand in faith. Regardless of what we think is happening around us, we look at what God's word is and says, I don't know, my circumstances aren't lining up, but God's word is truth. And I'm going to stand on God's word. I don't care what's going on. I'm standing on God's word. <laughs> when we stand at it, I mean, you, beg here, you, bank, you take it to the bank and you cash it. Say, this is mine. I knew a, a lady years ago, bless her heart. She loved Jesus with all her heart, but she was a very simple woman. I remember she called me one day and she said, Norma, I am standing on the word of God, literally. And I said, well, that's good. What are you, what are you doing? She said, I took the promise, I ripped it out of my Bible, and I put it in my shoe. Just, <laughs> that's not what we mean by standing on the word of God. <laughs> but very literally, she was taking it. That's what I'm going to do. You stand on what God's word says because it will stand the test of time. Jesus said there's not one dot or tittle that will pass away. Every word of God is going to come true, okay? So he comes with his lies and his deception, his, uses his cohorts, uses circumstances. But not only has Jesus, the Lion of Judah, triumphed over Satan, 
But the good news is, if you're a believer, you're part of God's children, you have triumph over the enemy as well, even if you don't think so. Let me read it to you. Ephesians 2, 6 says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So Jesus is sitting on the throne, far above all principality and power, and we know that he has power. But guess what? We've been seated with him. That means he has given us the right to use his name to call upon his power and to put Satan to flight. So the enemy may be roaring at you. He can be doing all of those things, and you have that power to say, no, stop in the name of Jesus. You know, this is a, a unique thing, and I'd, you might think of me a little strange and maybe a little out there, but i got to tell you what happened to me when I was trying to prepare this. I was writing and my laptop computer, and when I was talking about the things that Satan would bring to us, my computer suddenly just crashed, went back, bloom, blank. Oh, I thought, oh no, I'm going to have to start all over again. And so I reboot the thing, started all up again. And sure enough, I would have lost like a paragraph of the last things that I had written, and then I had to start thinking about it again and putting it in again. Four times in an hour that happened to me. Four times. And finally, when I was doing it, I thought, well, wait a minute. I think I know what's going on here. I just talked about how Satan will come with his distractions, with his hindrances. I just simply said, okay, Satan, in the name of Jesus, take your hands off my computer and stop bugging it. I am going to finish this. In the name of Jesus, I have all authority and power has been given to me over you. And you know what? It stopped. My computer hasn't crashed since. Oh, that's a small thing, I know. And you might think, oh, boy, she's really weird. <laughs> do that kind of thing. But I'm telling you, we have been given the power. Jesus has given us that. Our lion, the protecting lion, hasn't left us without help. He's given us an armor to wear, a shield, a sword to warm off, ward off the flaming attacks of the enemy. And Paul tells us that we have these so we can stand and withstand his attack. Now, Peter and James both tell us to resist him. And they say, resist him steadfast in the faith. I mean, plant your feet and don't move. So use your weapons so that you can resist and stand strong against the enemy. Now, I've been around long enough, I know, that sometimes, even with our weapons, even with our armor, standing and holding the ground of victory can be exhausting physically, emotionally, and spiritually, because wrestling is tiring. Have you ever watched a wrestling match? It's a test of strength, man. Even though we have all power behind us, the enemy wrestles with us. We're wrestling against these. So when we feel our strength is failing, when we feel fearful, tempted, overwhelmed, can I tell you that all you have to do is call in the name of the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he'll be there? That's what he's promised. I've given you scriptures. I didn't write them out for you, but you can take them and study them on your own. Let me tell you, Jeremiah 33, 3 says, Call to me and I will answer you. Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Safe. Run to the name of the Lord. Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you or forsake you. And I love this one. Psalms 12.5 from the King James Version. Listen to this. For the oppression of the poor, for the sign of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. Are you yearning for safety? God's promise says he will set us there. We call on the name of the Lord. And Isaiah, Isaiah 52, 12 says, and God's speaking to his children. He says, but you will not leave in haste or go in flight, for the Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. In other words, God's got your back. That's a good place for a hallelujah. <laughs> God's got your back. So all we need to do is to call, call on the protecting Lion of Judah to be there to strengthen and to protect you. There's a song written by Chris Tomlin. I wanted to find it to be able to play it, and I, you know, I don't know how to do all that stuff. And Mark was on vacation, so he didn't, he wasn't here. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't ask him. But it's called the song. It's called the Roar. Okay, I want to read one verse of that of that song to you because it's ministered to me so many times in the last few weeks. The words are, "I waited for the Lord. He appeared in blinding light." He led me through the darkest night when I couldn't see and my strength was failing me. I heard the roar of the Lion of Judah, and I heard the voice that calms the raging sea. He came to me, came to me when I needed the Lord. I heard the roar of the Lion of Judah. Now let me ask you, which roaring lion are you hearing tonight?